You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. While all eyes are on the Ukraine-Russia border and on Russian President Vladimir Putin, as the world wonders, will he invade Ukraine? Karen Demergen is the Washington Post Pentagon correspondent who also covers national security uh, in Congress. Karen, welcome to First Look. Good to be here, Jonathan. And also a, a reminder to the audience that you can uh, please tweet your questions uh, and comments to the handle um, at Post Live on Twitter. So Karen, what is the latest assessment about what's going on at the Ukrainian border? Well, um, there's this steady buildup of a Russian military presence there, uh, both at the Russia-Ukraine border and at the Belarus-Ukraine border, too. So that's the eastern front for Ukraine and the northern front for Ukraine. Um, and tensions are rising. Uh, this week, you saw an uh, official written response from the United States and NATO to Russia's demands. Russia had demanded that they put their responses in writing that basically lays out the you know line of you know where they won't go they're saying we still want to maintain an open door policy in nato um, as in countries who are you know aspiring to join nato have the right to make that decision themselves and of course that doesn't meet what russia's uh, claimed red line is which is that they want to guarantee that ukraine will never be accepted into nato um, on the philosophy that well, we don't want to have NATO right up against our national border any more than it already is. The, the Baltic states, which are former Soviet Republic republics that are now independent countries, um, do share a border with Russia. Russia's never liked that that much, but it's been the status quo since you know the early part of the 21st century. And Russia's been making this claim of nothing closer on other fronts with Ukraine and with Georgia. And we've seen these sorts of battles and these sorts of, you know, partial occupations of the countries. And now the question is, is Russia going to push even further into Ukraine and, um, you know, escalate that standoff even more? So do you have any um, uh, any insight into the, I believe it was a two-hour phone call or almost two-hour phone call between President Biden and Ukrainian President Zelensky, which from the readout from the Ukrainians, and I'm paraphrasing here was, it didn't go very well. Um, one of the things that come out of that call was that the president saying to, President Biden saying to President Zelensky, you know, a Russian invasion is imminent. Um, from, from your reporting, any reporting that you've been able to do, um, is, is that how that call went? I mean, you know, I, this this is the, the tension right now is not just between the West and Russia, but every uh, participant in this this crisis has their own objectives, their own um, understanding of what the level of the threat is, and their own uh, way of dealing with it, I guess we should say. You know, Ukraine's president is a very different character than um, President Biden is. He's young. He has a very public Twitter presence. He is somebody who likes to, he who needs to also keep his um, country calm, right? Because if there's a panic, that could also worsen things. And that's been what the Ukrainians have been communicating. And the United States has clearly been communicating, look, you could actually have a really, really bad, very, very full-scale invasion here, and you have to take that seriously. Um, and and there's, you know, there's a, a unified front happening between with the West and Ukraine against Russia about don't do this. But when you consider how many different pieces the West has 
it's it is kind of not surprising that you would start to see these tensions emerge, especially as people start to wring their hands, worry about how imminent this is, and try to prepare for that. You have Ukraine, which has to keep its national population calm, has to actually fight off Russia on the front lines, primarily if that invasion does occur. So there's various swirling objectives there in terms of how they manage what the perception of the threat is and what they're being told by their allies with more robust intelligence capacities that the threat is. Um, but then there's also the 27 different countries of NATO, um, which have been fairly uh, aligned with each other and fairly unified, I think far more so than the Kremlin ever expected they would be this time around. But still, that's 27 different objectives. They have different geographic placements. They have different historical relationships with Russia. And so keeping everybody in line is a kind of nightmarish proposal and responsibility, <laughs> frankly, of, of, of nations right. like the United States that have, you know, the firepower to be able to help um, if things get really, really bad. Well, Karen, let's talk more about this, this um, calm that Ukrainian officials are trying to project. Um, the Ukrainian foreign minister says the current Russian troop levels at the border are, quote, insufficient for an all-out invasion. How is that claim going over at the Pentagon? I mean, I think that, look, everybody that assesses what the nature of the Russian troop buildup at the border is, is looking not just at the hard numbers, but also what are the things that are part of the, the, the display that they see? And does it include the certain types of units that they think would be necessary to sustain a, a, a fight that would go for more than just, you know, I'm going to trip across your border to scare you and then run back home? Um, so these are the different elements that people are analyzing as they look at these different scenarios. And But again, interpretively, just because there's not like universal agreement that like, oh, you need to see medical units and then there's an invasion. And if there's not, then clearly there won't be. Everybody is looking at similar information, but then drawing their own conclusions about what it actually means. So I think that in the West, there is a, a heightened degree of alarm. I think that there is a desire for everybody to take this very seriously and to mobilize um, in, the, in the Pentagon and to mobilize and act as if this could be a very, very serious invasion. You've heard that signaling coming from the highest level of the highest levels of diplomatic circles. I mean, you had the Deputy Secretary of State say earlier this week that they think that there's probably going to be, it seems like it's possible there will be some sort of an incursion armed um, force from Russia into Ukraine between now and the middle of February. So they are warning, look, this seems inevitably happening. Russia is not sounding any softer in the aftermath of the United States and NATO having delivered their response. Um, and, and Russia seems to be treating it as if it's going to be, well, you're giving us more and more reasons to invade. This is a lot of wolf for Russia to be crying and then not make good on it at some point. And I think that's the, the, the view from the United States. And so they want everybody to match that view. And, you know, that's that's you can't mm -hmm. force other people and other presidents and other governments to see the what, things the way you see them. Um, but that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> right. And, you know, the Pentagon spokesperson, John Kirby, was on CNN, uh, maybe within within the hour, you know, talking about the fact that, you know, hey, Russia has been consistently and persistently adding troops, adding material to, to the border, that they see an invasion coming imminently, probably in, as you just said, early to mid-February, when the ground is frozen. Uh, in the region. So there, there's a, um, a lot of signaling going on. And as you say, the, the Ukrainians don't seem to, you know, <laughs> aren't, 
I don't want to say not taking it seriously, but projecting an era of calm. But I have to ask you, there seems to be a bipartisan consensus growing in Congress for sanctions against Russia. <clears throat> One, I mean, how much of an appetite is there for that, not from Congress, but from the White House? Will the White House go along with that? And what financial pen penalties is Moscow likely to face? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I should just say on the Ukrainian front, obviously they take the Russian threat seriously in their own way. They've been dealing with it nonstop ever since you know the mm -hmm. last time that they we we ended or or froze this crisis. Um, you know, people have been dying every day. Like they keep fighting it. So to be fair, like they are also taking it seriously in their own right. Um, but yeah, you raise an interesting point about you know what are people are willing to do. Um, there is certainly a growing bipartisan consensus that we have to help. It's not just sanctions. There's also the feeling that we have to help Ukraine militarily, that we have to send them more firepower. We have to send them more javelin missiles. We have to send them things that we, they can use to defend themselves. And we're talking on the order of you know up to half a billion dollars more of that support, which is a significant influx given you know the quarter billion that we usually send them, um, that we usually authorize uh, on, on a yearly basis. Um, there is also this ongoing discussion, though, that, that, that the tension does seem to be right now between the parties about how do you do the sanctions? I think that you could probably get um, a consensus around the provision of extra uh, military assistance like now. Um, but the sanctions continue to be a bit of a sticking point because usually the way sanctions are created is that there is a uh, authorization given for the president to then execute by naming the different inst institutions and entities and individuals that are going to be the ones who get pounded with those sanctions. Mm. And I think there is um, questions afoot about, you know, how hard the Biden administration will be willing to go. They're certainly saying rhetorically that they're willing to in inflict very serious punishments on right. Russia. But again, this comes back to how do you reconcile the interests of 27 NATO nations and the United States and Ukraine so that everybody's happy. And, and the Europeans are far more tied to the Russians than we are. That's why you've seen these mm -hmm. steps be taken about trying to guarantee the energy resources of Europe, why you've, you've seen all these consultations. I mean, look, we've never done to Russia the types of things we've done to like North Korea and Iran. We haven't cut them off entirely from the global financial system, right? That's an option, but that is an option that would have real pain to be sustained right. by it other is. countries. And so can they go that far? There's some people in Congress that would love to go that far, but, but <laughs> others who are right. not to push the Biden's administration further than it might want to go. Right. Karen Demergent, Washington Post Pentagon correspondent who also covers national security in Congress. Thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Jonathan. We're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my colleagues, Washington Post columnists, E.J. Dion and Jennifer Rubin. Welcome back to First Look. Nice, nice to be here. here. Um, okay, this is, this is for, for both of you, but I'm going to start with you, Jennifer. Is the White House effectively dealing with the Russian threat on the Ukrainian border? I think they are. And you're actually seeing some grudging respect coming from people like Mitch McConnell, who acknowledges that they're, quote, going in the right direction. This is a terribly complex negotiation. And the sheer number of consultations and the number of hours spent with our allies, with Ukraine, um, is really quite remarkable. They've also done something that a lot of foreign 
foreign policy experts think is wise, which is to give Putin a number of, quote, off ramps. That is, other options of things we could talk about, things that he could say he got without going to the core issue, which is Ukraine's <coughs> territorial integrity and Ukraine's uh, right to, at the correct time, join NATO. So they put forth all sorts of things that they would be willing to talk about, putting those um, options in writing. And now we'll see if the Russians um, decide that uh, that's preferable. I think mm -hmm. they have gone much further in specifying the kinds of sanctions, everything from export controls to financial uh, controls to really delinking Europe from Russian uh, energy supplies. So I think right now they're doing what they can. It doesn't mean that they will deter Vladimir Putin but it does mean I think we've kind of organized the international community and Europe specifically to respond in a very meaningful way that would inflict great harm on the Russians. Mm -hmm. e EJ, your, your view, is the White House effectively dealing with the Russian threat? Uh, yes, and I think it's getting better and better. I broadly agree with uh, what uh, Jennifer said. And I, I think Karin made a great point. That was a great discussion you had with her of how many different pieces the West has. We're talking about more than two dozen democracies here that are very complicated internally. Uh, some of these sanctions that we would impose if Russia uh, invaded would have all kinds of complicated economic effects. And I think the administration has, on the one hand, gotten tougher and tougher uh, as time has gone on to really send Putin a message uh, that this will be an enormous problem if he invades, that we will respond uh, with all kinds of, uh, of, of sanctions and other uh, measures against Russia. Uh, at the same time, as Jennifer said, uh, can he have an off-ramp? Because avoiding this invasion would obviously be um, a great thing. I think it's worth noting that the Republican Party is actually split on this. The vast majority of people in Congress are tough on Russia and on the prospect of invading Ukraine. But you've got represented by some folks on Fox News and a few members of Congress, people saying, well, wait, maybe Russia has a point. I think we haven't paid enough attention to this very weird uh, position that's grown on the right that's rather sympathetic to Vladimir Putin. Yeah, that's the thing that, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the Republican Party didn't view Russia, you know, through a, a positive lens at any point. I mean, there's nothing that the Russians could do that would satisfy Republicans, but that's just a whole other time. But let's stick to, let's stick to this, um, um, the point about Republicans and how they're reacting to what the administration is doing, because some Republicans are criticizing the president for how he's handling the situation. House Republic, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has been rhetorically asking if the president has learned anything from the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, um, either one of you, this is a jump ball, but I'm just wondering how much of how much of an overhang is the the experience from Afghanistan over this whole situation? Jennifer, I'll have you respond to that first. Well, I think these are very different situations. One, we were on the ground in a war. Uh, here, we're not even contemplating, obviously, putting troops into Ukraine, although we would be right. reinforcing um, the eastern uh, 
uh, flank, if you will, of uh, NATO. I think one thing they learned is the value of communication and coordination, both on Afghanistan and later in the submarine deal that we negotiated with mm. the UK on Australia. The administration was criticized for not really um, doing enough outreach, not keeping uh, our allies informed on an hour by hour, week by week, day by day basis. And I think they're very much attuned to that right now. And they're very much concerned that everyone present a united front. They think that in and of itself acts as a mm -hmm. deterrent. But I will say, imagine if in 1956, Democrats in Congress took the side of Russia as it was invading <laughs> Hungary. Imagine in 1968 when the Russians um, quelched the uh, uprising in uh, what was then Czechoslovakia. The Democrats rushed to the side of Russians. This is why it's so bizarre. They are taking the uh, side of an aggressive anti-West, anti-democratic country. And it's really a alarming a sign of how far they've sunk into this authoritarian, mm -hmm. um, almost anti-American uh, mindset. It, it's really stunning. EJ, um, I want to get your response, um, if you have one, to this question real fast, because we got to talk about Supreme Court. A hundred percent. I agree with Jennifer. I think there is an overhang from Afghanistan. There are a lot of reports. No one knows exactly what's on Putin's mind. But it is said that uh, he sort of saw this as a sign of American weakness and may react. Maybe there's something to that. And I think the administration itself wishes that that withdrawal had gone better. But uh, for the rest of it, I think that they have really done everything they can to unite the allies against Russia. And I think uh, that they are getting them that Putin mm -hmm. is getting the message. So the big news, the other big news, but the big news here in Washington, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer's officially announced that he is retiring from the Supreme Court. Uh, yesterday, standing next to President Biden, he made it official, but then President Biden officially announced that he would name a black woman to replace Justice Breyer. So EJ, does this vacancy come at the right time politically for President Biden? I think it could not have come at a better time. And uh, as our colleague Gene Robinson wrote this morning, um, you know, the president suffered a number of setbacks in Congress on Build Back Better and in some ways, even more importantly, on voting rights. Uh, and what you have among Democrats is very broad unity so far uh, in, in confirming judges that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have voted for Biden judges. He has some excellent candidates. Uh, he promised in the campaign that he would appoint a black woman uh, to the Supreme Court, and he's going to keep that promise. And all of this stuff about, oh, my God, he is he is confining his choice only to black women, as if, first of all, there aren't a whole lot of hugely qualified black women out there. But secondly, as if this has never done be been done before, Ronald Reagan <laughs> promised to name a woman to the Supreme Court, and he did. He named Sandra Day O'Connor a rather good appointment in, in many, many ways. Uh, and so I think Democrats really long for this fight and they can use it to show how radical this Republican Supreme Court majority is. So I think it's a political opportunity, but it is also, if you will, an instructional opportunity to really change the conversation out of, on mm -hmm. the court and remind progressives how much is at stake uh, in right. court battles. Right. Republic Democrats, 
never they the Supreme Court or judges has never been a motivating factor. Well, un, until the Trump years. Jennifer, you wrote a column yesterday saying that 90% of the Supreme Court confirmation process is wasted. So what are your ideas to improve it? I think, first of all, the question should be short and the answer should be long rather than the other way around. Um, the Senate Judiciary Committee is infamous for uh, long speeches pontificating um, a bunch of wannabe judges trying to show the real judge how smart they are. Um, and it really does no good whatsoever for them to kind of drone on and on. So first of all, let the nominee speak. Secondly, they should be avoiding the stupid question that they know the judge cannot answer. She is not going to say, do you think Roe v. Wade is settled law? She is not going to say, what do you think about Citizens United. They should start asking more interesting and more uh, insightful questions like, um, for example, should judges be speaking in public at partisan events? Should judges uh, abide by the rules of ethics that apply to lower court judges? What is the basis for um, the way you look at a case of first impression? What are the factors that you look at when considering precedent? In other words, they should see how supple the minds of these women are. They should see um, how a judge thinks. And it's instructive for the public um, to understand that this is how judges should behave. Um, the current judges, the six um, very right-wing uh, majority judges have in many ways behaved in a very unjudicious manner, injudicious manner, um, and very political, very kind of thin-skinned. And, and I think it's time for a reset both for the Senate and for the bench. So I would love to see, I know this is pie in the sky, but a more <laughs> um, sober, more um, decorous um, kind of hearing, which we might actually learn something about what judges do. Could I oh, say Jennifer. something on that? I, I agree Hope with Jennifer. Hope eternal. Go ahead, uh, In general, that um, you should have shorter questions and fewer speeches and let the people sitting there who are the nominees speak. But I think that given a world in which there are going to be speeches, I do think those speeches have to be pointed, clear, and aimed at the large questions we confront because of the right-wing court we have and how dangerous this could get uh, for democracy itself, how the court is really assuming power that rightly belongs to Congress and the president. You know, I, I was going to switch to the voting rights conversation, but now given what you just, what you both have just said, I'm wondering, Jennifer, is it realistic given the conservative bent of the court and how more uh, active the court is in terms of speaking out and, um, and some folks would say legislating from the bench. Is it realistic that whoever President Biden nominates won't be asked those questions and the American people won't be looking to them or looking for them to answer those questions with real interest? I think the questions will be asked because I don't expect senators to um, suddenly develop restraint or respect for what judges do. But I think how the nominee answers is very important. And I think um, an explanation not only for why a judge cannot answer a specific case, but also a more fulsome answer about how the 
um, court looks at issues, and frankly, some instruction about the danger um, in which a court in which the majority of judges have been appointed by a president who did not have a majority of the American people, confirmed by a Senate majority that does not represent a majority of the people, the danger that that kind of body becomes completely divorced from public morals, public concerns, the public ethos, um, should inspire some judicial humility rather than the sort of grasping, reaching behavior that we have seen from the Supreme Court. So ironically, I would love to see this nominee give Republicans a bit of a lecture on judicial humility <laughs> and judicial restraint. I know this is a bizarre time for those of us who grew up um, when the roles were exactly reversed, but boy, I think it's needed right now. What do you make of that, E.J.? Well, amen to that. I think that the judicial activists right now are clearly Republicans. And since you wanted to talk about voting rights, and we can't talk enough about voting rights, let's go right straight to the court on that, that this conservative court, not once, but twice, has undercut the power of the Voting Rights Act. They took an act of Congress that was passed with huge bipartisan majorities and gutted it. And that's why we need to pass voting rights bills now. It's because the court abused its power, just as Jennifer said. And I think it really is important to say that that phrase conservatives love, love to use, you shouldn't legislate from the bench. Mm -hmm. Right now, the conservative court is legislating from the bench again and again and again. And I hope these hearings underscore that. You know, so EJ brought up uh, voting rights. We've got about 90 seconds left. Um, you both wrote columns about voting rights. EJ, you and I pretty much wrote the same column about, you know, stay involved, stay engaged. Jennifer, you I wrote a column. Right, yes, yes, of course, we are absolutely right. Jennifer, you wrote a column where you argued that um, the path is a, is a legal one in that, uh, well, you talk about it, DOJ. I mean, there's lots of other ways we can do. DOJ is really stepping up. It didn't get very much coverage, but this week there was a huge meeting with 550 state voting officials in which the Justice Department made known that they're going to give grants to state and localities for protection of election workers who have really been harassed, threatened uh, with violence. Um, we also see a much more active um, route through the courts, through state referendum. We've seen gerrymandered uh, maps be struck down in Ohio yep. and in Alabama. Alabama. So although the federal legislative um, route has been blocked, there are these other routes that really have to be done. And ultimately, this is um, an issue for democracy. What kind of people do we want as secretaries of state? What kind of people do we want passing laws um, and making it harder or easier to vote? Mm -hmm. So I definitely Jennifer, think that this is going to be an issue in uh, the midterms. Yes, in the and midterms, for, for sure. EJ, EJ, we got to go. Quick, I know we're running no, out of no, time. We don't, no, we are, we are out of time, EJ. No, <laughs> seriously, we're out of time. Jennifer Rubin, EJ uh, DeYoung, thanks so much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.